and welcome to 13, the podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. And today we have a special episode where we are actually going to have a recording from a debate that was held on campus recently. And in the studio right now, I have Professor of Political Science, Stanley Brubaker, to talk a little bit about the history of the Constitution Day debate at Colgate, what it is, why we do it, and uh, what the recording you will hear um, is going to be all about. So, Professor Brubaker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, tell us tell us about Constitution Day at Colgate. Okay, I'll start with Constitution Day itself. It, sure. uh, it began in 2004 with uh, an amendment to a spending bill by Robert Byrd uh, there had been uh, something in the works for a long time by various citizen movements, but Byrd attached an amendment to this bill uh, requiring that every institution, uh, educational institution that received federal funds would hold some kind of program on Constitution Day, September 17th. Uh, he did not specify the content at all. Uh, it's uh, completely uh, neutral. Uh, and I think that's contrary to what some people think about it, which is that it should be something honoring the Constitution or this or that content. But it's really completely open, and it's just to commemorate that day uh, in 1789 when the 39 delegates signed the document that is our Constitution. Okay. And so how did how did Colgate arrive on a debate format? Thank you for asking that question because, as I said, that it's wide open. And where some universities do make it more of a simple ceremony or something to honor the Constitution, we thought the best way to honor the Constitution is to have an argument because the Constitution is founded on arguments. It rests on arguments. And we think that if you just have rituals, uh, ceremonies, some way honoring it, uh, those become empty formulas. So it all is about debate. We have uh, fundamental principles that we are attached to with our Constitution, but their meaning, their extension, what they mean uh, for our circumstances, our time, is always a subject of debate. And uh, so we've always focused on that. We Sometimes we've had panels but mostly we've had debates, and that's, uh, that's just been a lot of fun. And the topics of these debates are, uh, I, won't, I won't say edgy, but these are, these are tough topics. You aren't shying away from difficult <laughs> conversations at all. No, we usually manage to find it's a lot of fun because, uh, you know, you think an old document like that, what relevance can it have? But yet it seems almost every really burning question there's a constitutional angle to it. So we do try to be timely about it. So uh, during the um, NSA controversy, the surveillance, we had one about national security and privacy. And uh, the campus debate about uh, a sexual assault due process, we had a debate about that. Uh, hate speech versus free speech. <laughs> we had a very lively debate on that. Uh, the masterpiece cake controversy. Does a baker have to bake a cake for a gay couple uh, that uh, uh, doing which would, he said, violate his religious principles? Yeah. So then we do sometimes uh, some, you know, historical but still very lively questions. For instance, we did one a couple of years ago on uh, whether the Constitution enshrined slavery. And it was between Sean uh, Willents 
and David Walsh-Dreischer, both of whom had written very important books on the subject, coming to different conclusions. Hmm. Uh, that, was, that was just wonderful. So this year, you were <laughs> you're going to ask me about that. Yep. Uh, we're doing uh, the question that, that brought by the SFFA versus Harvard and SFFA versus UNC. SFFA, I should say, is the Students for Fair Admissions. It's a group of uh, Asian students who argue that they have been discriminated against in the preferential treatment programs that, uh, that prefer other minority races. Well, this is a huge case, and probably the most important case, uh, certainly of the 21st century, uh, on how to affect higher education. I'd say that this is probably as important as the original uh, Bakke decision affirming affirmative action in higher education in 1978. So um, I think it will be of enormous consequence both for public universities and for private universities because uh, both the Constitution 14th Amendment is affected and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, which affects all educational institutions at receiving federal funds. So, hmm. yeah, this will be of enormous consequence. So who will be debating today? Well, we've got two of the best. Uh, we have um, Randall Kennedy from Harvard Law School, who's uh, written a number of important books bearing on, on this subject, uh, and, uh, and also Rick Sander, Rick Sander from UCLA Law School, who's probably the most prominent um, friendly critic of affirmative action with his thesis of mismatch that the uh, supposed benefits of the program are actually harmful uh, to the students who are uh, advantaged by it, hmm. that, that, the, that uh, students who are uh, less well-prepared uh, than the average student at, uh, at a given law school uh, find themselves swamped by it and would actually do better in terms of uh, law board uh, success and success in their careers by going to a, uh, a less competitive school for which their preparation allows them to thrive. That's mm. his thesis, that it's uh, well-intentioned but counterproductive. Interesting. And, um, you know, before we play the, the debate itself, can you tell, set up the, um, the format? So what yeah. can people expect? Like, how does yeah. this proceed? Yeah. So we've worked at this over the years, and we've come up with a format that we think works uh, very well to ensure that there's a genuine debate, a meeting of minds rather than two people taking opportunities to talk past each other. So it's designed that there, we have two rounds, uh, 12 minutes per round, and each gets to make a, their opening statements in that. But it concludes with a question for the opponent. So Rick Sander will go first in this case, and he'll make his case, and then Randall Kennedy will make his argument, but he concludes with a question hmm. for Rick. And then we come back for the second round, and Professor Sander then will answer the question posed for him and pose one, then for Professor Kennedy, and he will answer that. We had included more questions in this, in a two or three for each of them, but it just got to be too complicated. So uh, we found it to work very well just that, uh, well, to pose that single question, and they know that the other person knows that that question is going to be posed, so that uh, it does 
generally make for a true meeting of minds. So that's a total of about 20, what is that, 36 minutes, and then we, have, then we open it up to Q&A with the audience. Okay, so students that are in, in attendance can ask questions? Yeah, in fact, we, we actually have a tradition uh, that we started with Constitution Day of uh, reserving the first three questions for students only. They are students about, of course, to continue after, but the first three are reserved for students. We have found that if you give the first ones to professors, they sometimes feel obliged to give another lecture themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that sounds great, and I'm very excited to hear the debate. So I think without further ado, we will start the recording. Terrific. So, welcome to our Constitution Day debate. Uh, Some sort of event is required by the federal government as a condition of receiving their funds, but they don't specify what sort of event you're supposed to have in honor of this day, on which the 39 delegates to Philadelphia signed the document that became our Constitution. Some institutions simply have some sort of celebration of constitutional principles, We think such principles, limited government, separation of powers, liberty, equality, are certainly worthy of celebration, but we think it's more important to recognize that these principles rest on arguments, and that if principles are merely recited, they are likely to decay into empty pieties. We recognize that uh, fundamental principles, what seem to be settled principles also become controversial when they're extended into contemporary circumstances. So in uh, our recognition of Constitution Day, we've always had a debate, um, a a debate to remind you um, that that these these principles are controversial. And we also this year have extended, in addition to our pocket Constitution, this lovely little booklet which reminds you as students, faculty members, that you do have the right and even an obligation to exercise freedom of speech. Okay, so let me take this opportunity first to thank uh, the uh, directors of the center, uh, Professor Carolyn Guile of Art and Art History, Robert Cranach, Political Science, and our many donors uh, who make these events possible. Say a word about our topic, its background, our debaters in the format. Our topic is affirmative action before the Supreme Court. And in the particular case that brings this issue to the Supreme Court, uh, the SFFA, a group of Asian American applicants, challenged the admission policies of Harvard and uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They contend that the policies give preferential treatment to underrepresented minorities invidiously discriminate against them as overrepresented minorities. Whether and how these admissions policies might effectively discriminate against Asian Americans involves some complex uh, controversies and statistics that are not likely to prove edifying for our purposes this afternoon. So we're going to focus on the broader issue of whether a university may employ racial preferences in their admissions policy. It's a very vexing problem over which the court has divided for almost 50 years, 
And I thought it would be useful as just a preface to the arguments I give you a little bit of exposition on some of that background. So we've included in your materials this little handout on background and, uh, cases. And let me t turn to this, um, if you can go through this with me. I think that'll help you get deeper into the argument that's going, that will ensue. So the question that we're going to address is whether should the Supreme Court mandate race neutrality in college admissions? And to answer that question, the court typically looks to a number of things, including the constitutional text or legal text, precedents, and doctrines. So let me say a word about, the, uh, about each of these. The text, the 14th Amendment, which you have in your handy constitution, as well as in this, this handout, uh, the relevant phrase is that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Also very relevant to this controversy is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VI, which reads, no person in the United States shall on ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Now, I would call to your attention that the Constitution limits states. It's the significance of that first phrase, no state shall. The 14th Amendment doesn't reach private action, but the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does, at least any private action receiving federal funds. So the, uh, uh, the Constitution limits states, certainly you and University of North Carolina, uh, but not necessarily to, the, the, to Harvard. Civil Rights Act 64 reaches to both Harvard and to UNC. Okay, let's look at some of the, the case law. The first and famous case is the one of Regents of University of California versus Bakke. In this case, the University of California Davis Medical School reserved 16 of its 100 slots for disadvantaged minorities only. Okay. Uh, is that constitutional? Is it legal? Four of the justices said that it's not legal, that the, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64 says in very in crystal clear terms that no person should be denied access, and Bakke was denied access to those 16 slots on the basis of his race. Four justices said, yeah, this is constitutional and, and legal because of its purpose. Its purpose is to redress past societal discrimination, and that's the intent of the law. Uh, it, language may reach broader, but its purpose is, is, is to uh, uh, protect disadvantaged minorities, and it doesn't really apply with the same force to uh, majorities. Okay, we're divided for four. And Justice Powell cast the deciding vote in which he said, no, this program at Davis is neither constitutional nor legal, but, this is a very important but, a better designed admissions program, such as the one employed by Harvard, in which race is but one aspect of a holistic consideration of a candidate, and is designed to ensure a diverse student body, not remedy societal discrimination would be constitutional and legal. Hint, hint, America, here's how you can have a, a, a legal uh, constitutional affirmative action program. And most universities did follow Powell's lead on this. 
Now, it's important to note that Powell only spoke for himself, but this was a very, very influential opinion. It was challenged later uh, in cases that came from the University of Michigan, the law school, and the undergraduate program in Grutter and Gradsby Bollinger. Bollinger is the president of Michigan, was the president of Michigan. Uh, the law school had a program that looked a lot like Harvard's. And the undergraduate program, when challenged by Gratz, employed a system of points. So uh, it didn't reserve uh, particular places for minorities, but it gave minorities 20 points out of the 100 that would be needed to gain admission. All right, the court uh, gave us something of a split decision on this. They upheld the program for the law school, the one that looks like Harvard's, and the undergraduate program they decided was illegal, unconstitutional. Now, this is interesting in result because only two of the justices on the court thought that there was a difference between the two. But this is controlling that a program that has a holistic consideration of the candidates, where race is considered for the purpose of promoting diversity, that's constitutional, but something as mechanical as specified points or reserved slots is not. Okay, Fisher versus University of Texas is pretty much the same story, uh, so I'm not going to go into that. One reason the court is divided is that it's not quite sure what traditional tests of equal protection mean in these contexts. All laws classify, and so all laws can be challenged in some sense as an unequal application of the law. Trucks that weigh over a certain amount have to pull into weigh stations, trucks under that don't. But most laws only have to show that they are, the goal behind them is legitimate. This is the rational basis test. The goal is legitimate, and the means are reasonably related towards that end or that goal. But if a law classifies on the basis of race or certain other suspect categories, then the, the, uh, the state has to prove, or the institution has to prove that the end is compelling not just legitimate, but compelling, and the means are not merely rationally related to this end, but are narrowly tailored to intrude as little as possible on the, on the, the equality of the, uh, of the participants. So, or in other words, it's necessary, compelling, and these are the means are necessary even if they do perhaps you know, bend, press against a fundamental right. Uh, now, so the court has, you know, treated these cases with nominal strict scrutiny, but people have pointed out that the court has actually seemed, in some sense, oddly deferential to the universities because of their interests and academic freedom. So it ends up, although nominally strict, rather deferential to universities, looking at the means carefully but being deferential towards the end. And for many commentators, it seems like that's an unstable combination. Now, we have two of the most important voices in this debate with us this afternoon. As I mentioned, the case is going to come before the Supreme Court uh, at the end of October. And I don't think there's any case in this century of such importance to higher education. And uh, two of the voices that will be invoked in this debate are with us this afternoon. Uh, Rick Sanders, Richard Sanders, is a professor of law at UCLA. 
He received his BA from Harvard, MA, PhD in economics, as well as his JD from Northwestern University. He has worked on questions of social and economic inequality for nearly all of his, his career, joining the federal VISTA program straight out of college, where he worked on issues of housing and community development in Southside Chicago. At UCLA, he helped launch the program in public interest law and policy. In 2004, Sander published a comprehensive study of affirmative action in American law schools, focusing primarily, focusing particularly on the ways in which large preferences actually imposed unexpected but substantial costs to their beneficiaries. Along with Stuart Taylor, he expanded this thesis into a provocative best-selling book in 2012, Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students, It's Designed to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. Randall Kennedy is the professor of law at Harvard Law School. He received his BA from Princeton, he studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, received his JD from Yale Law School. He served as the clerk for the uh, famous Judge Skelly Wright and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. He joined the Harvard Law Faculty in 1986. He's a prolific author, uh, publishing uh, both in professional journals as well as national newspapers and journals of opinion. He's the author of six books, including Race, Crime, and the Law, for which he received the Robert F. Kennedy Award for, this, for, uh, uh, for his book. And he's written for discrimination, race, affirmative action, and the law, and most recently, Say It Loud, on race, law, history, and culture. So uh, format for this afternoon's debate, we will have two rounds. The first is 12 minutes long. Uh, second is six minutes. We have Sophie here in the front row is going to keep uh, track of the time. And uh, so in the first round, it's 12 minutes. The second is six minutes. And the format includes an opportunity for each debater to pose a question for the other. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome our guests. And uh, the first question goes to the question. First round goes to first to you, Professor Sander, uh, taking the affirmative on the question. Uh, should the Supreme Court mandate race neutrality in college admissions? Thanks, everyone, uh, for coming on on a beautiful day. Thanks, for Professor Brubaker, for organizing this event. And thanks to Professor Kennedy for, uh, for joining this debate. He's, uh, you know... I don't know how many of you are familiar with Professor Kennedy, but he's, he's famous, I think, for, among other things, being a voice of reason on many controversial issues, um, and often courageously so. So I'm looking forward to our discussion this afternoon. Um, to me, the issues around affirmative action um, are, are largely real-world ones. In other words, we can have a very principled argument about the merits of, um, uh, that, that essentially Professor Brubaker described in, in the Bakke decision. You know, does, does the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mean that we, we must not discriminate against anyone? Or does it mean that we must first take into account race to get beyond race? At that sort of level of principle and abstraction, I think this is a very hard debate to resolve. But when you get into the actual operation and effects of uh, racial preferences in higher education, I think 
the answers become a lot easier to understand. So that's what I'm going to focus on, and that's why I prepared this handout um, that you, uh, I hope, picked up on your way in. Um, the justices who wrote Bakke and Grutz and Grotter and Fisher, uh, I think all saw racial preferences as undesirable, um, but arguably necessary on some short-term basis. They generally saw them uh, and upheld them on the basis that they would be small and that they would be temporary. Um, but they've turned into something that's very different. Uh, racial preferences today really are not much smaller than they were 50 years ago when they were introduced. Uh, and that's because the underlying gap in, in the credentials of people applying to higher education and professional schools continues to be very substantial. Uh, I would argue that the focus on sort of patching up that problem by having preferential admissions distracts us from focusing on the underlying credentials gap, which we need to fix. Um, if you look at how preferences operate in most universities, uh, they are very large, um, and they often discriminate against groups that uh, are themselves minorities. So this first slide shows patterns of um, uh, undergraduate enrollment for Asian Americans at a lot of elite colleges. And what you can see is that all the lines here, except for the demographic line and the Caltech line, sort of turned down in the early 1990s and converged towards this narrow range of 15 to 18%. That's kind of prima facie evidence that, um, that the Ivy League has adopted quotas for Asian American enrollment. Um, and the experts in, in, the, in the Harvard case showed in many ways that, uh, that there is a really uh, substantial Asian penalty, both re with respect to whites and with respect to other racial groups. This third slide shows that for African Americans, Harvard has pretty much a origin quota. They don't do what Davis did in the Bakke case. They don't say, we're going to admit 100 blacks to each class. They say that we're going to take into account 50 different characteristics, one of which is race. But in fact, the weight given to race is uniquely high, and the targeting of race is weighted in such an exact way that you get identical admission rates for blacks and non-blacks in the Harvard undergraduate pool. This bottom table on slide three shows that even Harvard's internal analysis reveals this really large preference that kicks in in column four when the demographics of students are taken into account. So the operation of preferences at Harvard, and I think this is pretty typical in higher education, is, is not what the Supreme Court had in mind when they said you could use preferences under special circumstances. One of the things that's frustrating to me about the operation of preferences is that it's led institutions to uh, largely ignore socioeconomic status. Uh, again, the experts in the Harvard case showed that Harvard uh, for African-American applicants actually has a, a, some negative weight assigned to socioeconomic status because they're trying, given the large uh, quota that they have, they're trying to maximize the academic achievement of those that they admit, so they focus on upper-middle-class applicants. Um, if you look in, at slide four, you see that, that across law schools, there's very, very little, if any, preference given on the basis of socioeconomic status. 
that top chart is essentially showing that the only group that's kind of significantly below others in entering qualifications is the group with the uh, highest SES parents. Um, whereas in race, which is the bottom chart, there's, there's huge preferences, preferences that are 20 or 30 times larger than the preference most schools give to socioeconomic status. So if we're interested in trying to help individuals who themselves have experienced disadvantage in life, we're kind of doing the opposite of that by focusing on, on uh, melatonin levels rather than on actual individual life circumstances. The result of that, as slide five shows, is that uh, higher education schools have a huge concentration of high SES students and very few students from low-income backgrounds. So all those points kind of go to the way preferences have operated in practice. What I want to talk about now is what their effects are. And the next couple of slides focus on what I call the mismatch effect. The idea of mismatch is that if you, as an individual student, receive a preference to a school where your credentials are well below those of your classmates, that actually puts you at a learning disadvantage. It means that when you walk into your first year chemistry class, the course is not pitched at you, it's pitched at someone who maybe has a, another year of, of AP chemistry in their, under their belt, or who scored 100 points higher on the math SAT than you did. And that means that you're gonna learn less than if you had gone to a school where your credentials are closer to the middle of the class. Um, there's a lot of empirical evidence supporting this, and I'm, I'm giving you two examples. One of them is on slide six, and this is an analysis that was done by a couple of psychologists named Smythe and McArdle, using very good data on a bunch of the lead schools. And they showed that for uh, blacks, whites, and Hispanics, um, all those groups have essentially identical levels of STEM completion when you control for one factor, the, uh, the distance between that individual's credentials and the middle of their class. So in other words, if you have a, a athletic preference for a white student or a large legacy preference for a white student or a large racial preference for a black or Hispanic student, all those students are equally and significantly disadvantaged in being able to achieve science degrees if they come into college wanting to pursue uh, some kind of STEM career. Another way of looking at this is the data that's on table seven, um, which looks at law schools. And this, this de data is about bar passage rates. And it's organized for three different schools, A, B, and C, according to the entering LSAT score of, of the students. Um, if you do this and you include other entering credentials, you actually get a, a more dramatic picture than this. But this, this is kind of a simple presentation. Um, so school A has the highest credentials of these three schools. But it has the lowest bar passage rate for students who enter with relatively low LSATs. Because those students at school A are going to be very heavily mismatched. Whereas at school C, they're going to be close to the median of the class. So if you look across the row of, say, 150 to 52, you see that similar students have a 22% bar passage rate at school A, but a 79% bar passage rate at school C. That's kind of a pretty dramatic effect on, you know, on the long-term effects of one's diversity policies. Um, more generally, aside from academic effects, I think preferences, I'm sorry, how much time do I have left? 
Great, okay. Um, aside from these academic effects, preferences have harmful social effects. Um, slide eight is probably the most confusing slide in here, so maybe I, I'm not gonna go into that too much. But the basic idea behind slide eight is that several studies, including this careful one at Duke, looked at students during the course of their college careers. And they found that, that uh, students tend to sort themselves academically in their friendship networks. So that if you have large racial preferences, what that leads to is uh, racial segregation over time while you're in college or law school. In other words, these, the diversity policies, the affirmative action policies we have are intended to create benefits of a diverse environment in education. But it can have exactly the opposite effect if that diversity is achieved through really large preferences because that leads to differences in performance and that leads to segregation. So, those are kind of data about the operation of large preferences. What I want to give you a taste of is some data about what happens when you eliminate preferences. Because there's a lot of understandable concern that, you know, what's beyond the precipice of moving to a no preference regime? Well, the institution that I'm from, University of California, went through this process 20 years ago because voters in California approved something called Prop 209, which banned the state from using race in, in any state program, including higher education. And some pretty amazing things happen. One of the amazing things is that this, uh, the University of California system reformed the way that it did outreach. Um, instead of just sort of using preferences to achieve the kind of diversity that it wanted, it started actually trying to change the pipeline, focus on the pipeline. It dramatically improved, it, it along with various other state efforts, dramatically improved high school outcomes for low-income students. Um, they did a better job of reaching out to students, telling them about what courses they, had to need, they needed to take to qualify for, for UC. So they started getting a much more diverse pool of applicants. And you can see this vividly in slide nine. The number of applications from blacks actually fell in the eight years before Prop 209 was passed, and then started skyrocketing after these new measures were implemented in 1998. Uh, what happened with Hispanics was, was similar, in some ways even more dramatic. In the short term, you had a drop in black enrollment, but within two or three years, that had turned around. And what's really striking is that um, there was something called a warming effect at the University of California, where blacks and Hispanics accepted offers from Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego at higher rates, significantly higher rates, than they had when preferences were in place. Um, and we think that the reason for that is that they liked the idea of going to a school where there weren't racial preferences. It was sort of a stronger validation of their own achievement. Um, because students who went to the schools were better matched with their classmates, uh, they had higher achievement rates. So GPA differences fell, and graduation differences across race fell. And slide 11 gives some notion of that. Um, it shows the dramatic increase in the rate at which uh, black and Hispanic students achieve STEM degrees in just four years, uh, basically tripling from pre-209 to post-209 period. So let's see, 60 seconds? Um, all right, so my, the last point I want to make is that there are alternative policies, different from racial preferences in higher education, that can have really dramatic effects. And um, maybe I'll talk more about it when I come back, but uh, the last two slides are intended to give you some idea of this. 
Racial segregation is a pervasive problem in American cities. Um, and it's been linked to all sorts of racial disparities, including the test score gap, the credentials gap that, that drives the need for preferences in higher education in the first place. The very last page shows that if you compare uh, urban areas like San Diego that have relatively high levels of integration to areas like Chicago that are very segregated, differences in outcomes are amazingly striking across the board. So there are proactive policies we can pursue to achieve housing integration and constructively get at the root problems that are causing the pipeline to be constricted and addressing fundamental causes of racial inequality as opposed to papering them over through what I think is an ineffective and, um, and unworkable system of higher education preferences. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, uh, the forum, and I very much appreciate the hospitality with which uh, I've, uh, that I've, that's been accorded to me. I'm here to speak on behalf of uh, affirmative action. I champion racial affirmative action because on balance it is conducive to the public good. That's so for a variety of reasons. There are a number of justifications for affirmative action, good justifications for affirmative action. And I want to spend a little bit of time walking through those. One is that uh, affirmative action partially redresses debilitating historical wrongs. Racial minorities have long suffered from racist mistreatment at the hands of the federal government, state government, and private parties in these United States. And this mistreatment has had lingering effects that put minorities at a disadvantage. And affirmative action is an effort to partially redress these debilitating historical wrongs. Another justification for affirmative action, much less, um, hasn't been argued for directly, but I, I, think it's, I think there's a good argument to be made that affirmative action is a useful supplement to anti-discrimination law. And, uh, affirmative action can be seen as a prophylactic measure to counterbalance ongoing but hard to identify racial discrimination. We have anti-discrimination laws, but anti-discrimination laws are notoriously hard to enforce. You have to know that you're being discriminated against. Even if you think you're being discriminated against, you have to go get an attorney. That's expensive. It takes time. Um, there's all sorts of social science evidence that indicates that racial minorities are, in fact, discriminated against. So I mean, one, one justification, it seems to me, for affirmative action would be affirmative action as a, a hedge against this force, this headwind that we know is out there but is hard to identify. Another justification for affirmative action would be affirmative action for purposes of integration. We want to bring people who've been marginalized into our uh, important strategic uh, institutions, regardless of the origins of their marginalization. So 
When we talk about racial affirmative action, a lot of the focus is on African Americans to a somewhat lesser degree, uh, uh, Latino uh, uh, Americans. But I would say, what about affirmative action for groups that have not suffered historical discrimination in the United States, but they're here, they're here. And let's suppose that we think that you know, they've, they've come, they have not been subject to, subjected to historical discrimination, but they've come and they're on the margins. And they've been on the margins for a couple of decades. It seems to me it's a good public policy to say we don't want people, especially people who are um, openly, maybe because of their complexion, uh, we don't want people to be left on the margins. We want to do something special to bring them in. We think we'll have a better society if we have an uh, integrated society. So integration as a, a justification for affirmative action. Another justification for affirmative action, and the one that's most talked about, the one that will be most talked about when the Supreme Court uh, hears argument, will be affirmative action as a pedagogical tool, so-called diversity. The idea here is, what universities have said, is that uh, better learning takes place on university campuses if uh, 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 the uh, student body, student bodies are diverse, geographically, maybe in terms of religion, maybe in terms of socioeconomic status, uh, maybe in terms of um, uh, interests with students, some students interested in, you know, this or that, the, 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 the famous uh, oboe player, you want some student who's interested in classical music, you want some student who's interested in hip-hop, and the idea is that you bring all these students together uh, and they teach one another. And that's the basic idea of, uh, you know, so-called diversity. Diversity for purposes of knowledge creation, and maybe better decision-making. Uh, yet another argument for, in favor of affirmative action might be the argument for legitimation. So for instance, uh, Professor Sander mentioned the uh, case involving uh, the University of Michigan. Uh, the author of, uh, of the uh, Grutter opinion, um, um, Justice O'Connor, in her opinion, talked about legitimation. In particular, she talked about, well, you know, what about the military? Uh, what about the military? Don't, don't we want a racially diverse military? And if you have a racially diverse military, doesn't that mean that you're gonna have to have uh, racial diversity in the military uh, academies? And again, for purposes of just putting people at ease, for purposes of people thinking, that the institutions, the central institutions of American life, including higher education, that they're fair, doesn't that require some degree of diversity? Now, what you've heard from my colleague here and what you just heard from me are arguments over would this be a good policy or not? We can debate that, and we will debate that. But this is Constitution Day, right? This is Constitution Day. And one of the things that has to be um, reckoned with is 
what does a constitutional decision mean? If affirmative action is struck down, as I think it probably will be, if the Supreme Court of the United States says you cannot take race into account in your admissions policies, what that means is this debate that we're having is stilled. If something is in unconstitutional, that means it's outside of normal political debate. If, Mr. S if, if the Supreme Court rules the way that I presume that Professor Sanders wants, there won't be debate like we're having here because affirmative action will be, will be taken off the table. As currently, the, the, the current situation is, it seems to me, a perfectly defensible sense, situation. We have debate. In California, the people of California have said, we don't want racial affirmative action. It's out of there. The people of Michigan have done the same thing. Okay, it's out of there. People in other jurisdictions view things differently. Now, again, if there is a constitutional ruling that says affirmative action is a type of invidious discrimination, there is no more regular political debate about it. It has been taken out of regular politics, and it seems to me that that would be a tremendous mistake. There is nothing in the text of the Constitution that, uh, is, that, sh that should preclude affirmative action. That's right, the 14th Amendment uh, says that all people shall be, all persons shall be accorded the equal protection of the law. Well, it seems to me there's nothing about affirmative action that precludes everyone being accorded the equal protection of the law. Uh, if an institution is actually engaged in invidious discrimination against Asian Americans or black Americans or white Americans or Americans of any sort, if any institution is engaged in discrimination against them because of their race, I'm against that. That should be stricken. But that's not what uh, affirmative action it's typically designed and implemented does. The text of the Constitution does not preclude uh, uh, affirmative action. Uh, the original understanding of the 14th Amendment should not be seen as having uh, preclu precluding affirmative action. Um, uh, precedent certainly doesn't. I mean, the whole purpose of the, the, the petitioners in this case are actually making an attack on the uh, existing precedent. So with respect to the, the constitutional issue, it seems to me that the Constitution is, is a constitutional matter. Uh, affirmative action should be upheld. And here, by the way, I want to make a special appeal to my conservative friends. I want to make a special appeal to conservatives. What is my special appeal to conservatives? My special appeal to conservatives is 
remember, remember judicial restraint. The petitioners in this case are asking for precedent to be overturned. The petitioners in this case are asking the courts of the United States to, um, uh, to um, tell officials everywhere, no, you've got to do it the way that Professor Sanders wants it done. Well, what about localism? What about experimentation? What about judicial restraint? These are, these are classical, long-standing, conservative virtues. But they seem now to have been forgotten. And I would ask my conservative colleagues to stand up and be counted at this moment. I have uh, 30 seconds left. I have a question for my colleague here to begin our discussion. He mentioned in his remarks at the very end, he talked about the, ex the uh, experience in California, and he said that uh, uh, the California authorities had done various things to uh, bring in, recruit and bring in racial minority folk. Question, is that unconstitutional? Is outreach unconstitutional on the grounds that, well, if, you're, if you are reaching out to racial minority people, aren't you therefore disadvantaging non-racial minority people? Can you engage in race-conscious outreach? Can you engage in race-conscious action of any sort? I'll start with that as my question to you. Thank you all very much for your attention. Okay. Okay, great. Um, well, thanks. I think, I think we're in a real debate here. So I think Professor Kennedy asked me a good question and raised a good general issue. Um, and my response is in three parts. First, um, he sort of has brought up the issue that's on my first slide that I skipped in my original presentation but which Professor Brubaker brought up in his, which is the distinction between the 14th Amendment and Title VI. Um, and I agree with Professor Kennedy. I do not favor the Supreme Court ruling that Harvard and UNC are violating the 14th Amendment. It seems to me that the language of the 14th Amendment is broad enough to uh, include the possibility of racial preferences. I think they should hold against Harvard and UNC on the grounds that it's violating Title VI. Because as that slide and as Professor Brubaker made clear, the language of, of Title VI is, I think, very clear on this point. And the debate in the, in the House of Representatives and the Senate was also very clear on this point in 1964. They did not want to permit discrimination by institutions of higher education on the basis of race, period. So if the court does that, takes that approach, and acts on the basis of Title VI, then the political debate is not stilled. And we can, Congress can, uh, and I, I think Congress probably would say, 
we at least want to carve out an exception for the military. Because Professor Kennedy is right, that there, there's a lot of evidence that you know, all the stuff that I talked about with higher education arguably doesn't apply very well to the military. The military seems to have taken a very different approach to the, the way that it uses preferences. And it really tries to create an integrative culture uh, that the preferences are, are building into. Uh, and they seem to have had a lot of success. I mean, there's not a lot of data on exactly how, how it works, but I think there's at least a pretty good argument for it. Um, that sort of retention would be feasible under this approach. I also want to make clear that, that there's a, a fundamental difference between affirmative action and racial preferences. Racial preferences, I, I would say affirmative action is this big circle, and racial preferences is a small circle within it. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, that, that again goes to Professor Kennedy's question about what California did after 1996. Um, doing, nobody within the university system seriously argued, and I think would not seriously argue if this was adopted nationally, that some degree of race consciousness and outreach is problematic. Um, people understand that building the pipeline makes sense. What has drawn the litigation in these cases, and it's, it's very expensive litigation, it's very hard to bring these cases, is preferences kind of going out of control and being over the top and manifestly treating people very differently at the actual objective stage of admissions. Um, but beyond that, you don't need to be particularly race conscious to do what University of California did. All you need to do is focus on the low performing schools and you're gonna capture most of the people who are negatively affected by the pipeline. Um, moreover, if the Supreme Court does uh, make it harder, if they, if they say the Title VI bars uh, explicit racial preferences, uh, you're still going to have lots of discussion, lots of exchanges about sort of proxies for that and the degree to which proxies can be used, like socioeconomic status or geographic origin or uh, connection to slavery, various other things that are not race itself but would have racially disparate effects. So we're not in any danger of this debate disappearing. I think, we're, I think what, what would happen with a Supreme Court decision is that we would have a more robust discussion and uh, universities would be in a position of actually having to articulate and defend exactly what they're doing. Um, so why don't, I, why don't I just conclude then with my question for Professor Kennedy, which goes to um, kind of the way that universities operate now. Um, so my question is, is the level, is the lack of transparency that we have in higher education today justifiable? And is that not a significant impediment to this kind of robust debate that Professor Kennedy wants us to engage in? Thank you. Um, I'll start with the, the question about lack of transparency. I think there's a real problem with the lack of transparency. Um, not only do I think there's a lack of transparency, I think it goes beyond, frankly, a lack of transparency. I think that, um, I think there's been a lot of double talk. I think there's been a lot of obfuscation on the part of authorities who have, um, who actually share uh, the, uh, the aims that I'm defending here. Now, I have considerable sympathy for 
the uh, authorities in, high, in uh, higher education because of the way in which the Supreme Court has, um, has dealt with this issue. You know, when I, when I spoke with you initially, I gave a, a variety of justifications for affirmative action. The Supreme Court of the United States, starting in the Bakke case, left only one so-called diversity uh, justification. That was the pedagogical justification. We'll have a better, you know, better, we'll have better learning if there are people who are from all over the place, including racially all over the place. Well, you know, I, I think there's something to that. Um, but I think people have, it's, you know, there, there, there's something to it, but there are, you know, the, the, but uh, is, that, is that strong enough for what we would view as a justification for something that's being put under strict scrutiny? I think there's a strong argument that no. That's why, go back to Professor Brubaker's initial remarks, that's why uh, although the Supreme Court says that affirmative action has been viewed, has been justified under strict scrutiny, not really. It's strict scrutiny light. And the, you know, the problem is that everybody has been engaged in double talk. The Supreme Court says it's going to you know, subject this to strict scrutiny. No, it's not subjecting it to strict scrutiny. The... Uh, the, um, the um, the uh, schools have said, well, we're after diversity. Well, yes and no. Why is it that in these discussions that black Americans in particular figure so prominently? I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of diversity, for goodness sakes. We, you know, and then the United States has all, you know, lots of races. But when you really get down to it, it's, you know, 90% of the discussion, black Americans, uh, and, you know, it's probably in the last what, 10, 15 years, Latino Americans. But you don't hear about anything else with respect to diversity. You don't hear about other sorts of, you know, you don't hear about ideological diversity, geographical diversity. I mean, if people were taking diversity seriously, they might ask, well, why are there so few foreign students? It's a big world. Wouldn't it be, mightn't we have better education if there were people from all around the world? But you never hear about that. The real reason, actually, for affirmative action, the central thing, and I think properly so, is an effort to try to redress the historical racial wrongs perpetrated in America. But the Supreme Court has said you can't say that. And so our educational authorities don't say that. They don't even call these programs affirmative action anymore. That's, that's why the diversity idea has become so big. You don't have deans of affirmative action anymore. You have deans of diversity. And that's because people have wanted to get away from, have tried to, you know, the, the Supreme Court said, squawk. And so university officials squawked. Now, you, you can say that that's obfuscation. You can say that that's, dis, you know, being disingenuous. And to some degree, that's probably true. Uh, I have sympathy because they were struggling 
struggling mightily to do something that I think was rather noble, and that was try to redress past wrongs along with the other justifications that I made reference to. Now let me just say a few other things. How's my time? I'm going to just say one other thing, and our discussion will allow us to bring in others. I want to go back to the, by the way, um, frankly, this is a debate. I feel pretty good up here. My colleague has already um, uh, said that he will throw in the towel on the constitutional issue. You did hear that. Well. I mean, I, I feel I've, 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 I've won a lot already. Now, with respect to the Title VI issue and the word discrimination, the word discrimination, like a lot of words, you know, we, we deal with words, we try our best with words, but words are funny vehicles. They're very difficult vehicles. What does discrimination mean? One thing that's going on is we have a different conception of what discrimination means. When I think of discrimination, the discrimination that Title VI prohibits and rightly prohibits is what I would refer to as invidious discrimination against somebody because of their race. That's, you know, that's racial invidious discrimination. Question. Is it really plausible to believe that at the various universities that are defendants in these cases, that they, when they're looking at you know, so-and-so's application, says, you know what, we don't like this type, and we don't want them in, or we want to keep them, we want to keep as few of them in as as possible, we want to put as we want as few as we as we have to, you know, tolerate. Is that what's going on? Clearly, that's not what's going on. Rather, what's going on is these institutions are trying to bring together a range of folks from different places. They're creating rules, having criteria that do have a an effect, an adverse effect on some groups, and the claim is that those adverse effects constitute discrimination. I don't see that sort of thing as discrimination, as discrimination is involved in Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We'll continue our discussion in a, in a, in a, in a different format. Again, thank you very much. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to you both, and I'm, I am uh, also uh, impressed that there actually seems to be some commonality here that, on that uh, these affirmative action programs don't violate the, the Constitution, but it uh, seems like it's a closer call on the Civil Rights Act of 64. Also, it seems like there's some commonality in uh, discounting what is the, uh, the holy uh, concept at the University of Diversity. Um, that it seems like neither one of you thinks that that's an entirely honest uh, rationale that the universities are pursuing. But this is the opportunity for questions, and uh, we have a tradition of reserving the first three questions uh, for students. They're free to ask more questions. Let me encourage you to go back to the mic to pose your question because we want to have the 
this recording uh, will become available eventually, well, in a few days up on our website, but we want to make we get, we get good sound. So let me encourage you to go up to the mic to pose your question. And again, uh, the first three we would like to have from students. Oh, hi. Um, I was wondering, so you both mentioned, uh, you didn't necessarily get time to kind of flesh it out, but you both mentioned the more personal side of it. On the one side, you have um, Mr. Sanders saying that what happens, you know, when people feel that their academic achievements are perhaps undervalued because it's overshadowed by race, you know, did I get in here because of because I have the credentials, or did I get in here because I look a certain way? And then on the other end of the spectrum, like, did I get denied here because of my race or because of my credentials? And then how does that affect people, and how do you think it plays into the argument? Well, I, I think it's important. Um, are these live? Can you hear me? Yep, okay. Um, there... It, it seems to be an untouchable area of research to look at what's the stigmatizing effect of preferences. But I think the stigmatizing effect must be significant because um, it comes up a lot and it's informally raised very frequently. Um, uh, so you, you have a policy that on the one hand uh, makes many minorities who get in on the merits question um, whether they did. You have... Um, many people in the discriminated against category who, um, who e even if only 10% you know, of their peers uh, were passed over because of their race, all of them may feel that you know, they're affected by it. So in many ways, the policy is kind of calculated to, to magnify its negative effects, um, which is why, to me, it, it's so much more appealing to, uh, to figure out ways to do affirmative action without explicit use of racial preferences. When, when my law school moved to a system of socioeconomic preferences right after Prop 209, um, th those effects all disappeared. You know, no one, uh, there was no way to tell who might have received a socioeconomic preference. A, they were smaller, and B, they extended across racial lines. And, you know, you just had no way of knowing. It was, it was all, uh, kind of blended into, yeah, there, there, are, there, are, there are certainly things beyond academic credentials we want to take into account. So I think you, you just get a, a dramatically healthier environment that way. A um, couple things. Can I be heard? Okay. Um, first, you know, uh, affirmative action is like many policies. It has downsides. Uh, I, I, I've, I'm, you, know, you, you heard me mention previously what I view as the upsides, the justifications, but does it have downsides? Oh, sure it has downsides, and, uh, and, 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 and they've been mentioned. One, uh, stigmatization. Is there a stigmatization? Is there a problem when, um, you know, when, when, when there is a, uh, an affirmative action boost does that put a, you know, cast a pall, perhaps, over people who are in the institution? You know, does that cause people to say, well, you know, this is a selective institution, but maybe this person isn't all their, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, hepped up to be because uh, after all they got you know 10 extra points because of their uh, you know racial status is that you know is, is there a problem with that yeah there's a problem with that does it have consequences sure it has consequences sure it has consequences I have no doubt I have no doubt that on the first day of class when I go to my contracts class at Harvard Law School and I walk in and I'm in front of 80 students, I'm quite sure that there are, you know, you know some students who uh, think, well, hmm, is this guy, uh, you know, is this guy all that I would want from a professor at Harvard Law School? I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. And uh, by the way, and I'm not, and I'm not calling, I'm not, I'm not making an accusation that that student is racist at all. I mean, you know, we live in a society that has had affirmative action for a while, and I can imagine somebody thinking, well, you know, this person's probably gotten boost, as I have, by the way. I'm not going to say that I have not gotten. I'm gonna, have I been helped by affirmative action? I have no doubt that I have been. Yes. And I'm quite sure that um, people who, you know, encounter me in terms of peers, in terms of students, just, you know, just in general, is there an affirmative action sort of stigmatizing discount? Yeah, probably. Hard to determine exactly how extensive it is, but is that out there? Yeah, sure that's out there. But again, you know, compared to what? Uh, every social policy is going to have a downside. If you have a tax system, it's going to have a downside. But, you know, the question is, compared to what, are the net benefits greater than the net, you know, deficits? In my view, from the, the his, you know, what we've seen is, in my estimation, a case in which a social policy that has real detriments associated with it, I think it has, on balance, been better. One last thing. Um, I, am I am perfectly happy to uh, reconsider the design of affirmative action. And by the way, I agree with you. If, because race is such a funny thing in our country. Uh, it does have a sort of a toxic you know, a, a, a toxic vibe, however you cut it. You can try to, you know, you can try to minimize the toxicity, but you put in a racial thing and there's going to be some toxicity. So if we can design things to minimize that, even to the extent of let's, let's, let's get rid of any express racial signal. Let's use some other means which, if, even if it's only indirect, let's use some other means to try to, to, try to move our society to a fairer place. I'm, I'm fine. I'm with that. We have to study that. We have to make sure that that's going to happen. I will tell you, though, uh, Professor Sander, and you know, given, given you know, your interests, given your background, I have no doubt 
that what you say, you're saying in good faith. I also have, however, no doubt that there are people who say what you say, but they are not speaking in good faith. Um, the only time, the only time that they express any interest in a fairer America is when they are attacking racial affirmative action. Six days out of the week, they, you talk, they're not talking about fairness at all. They're not talking about uh, problems of uh, you know, historical deprivation or any other deprivation. Six days out of the week, they think everything is hunky-dory. The one day of the week that they talk about racial fairness is the day that they are attacking affirmative action. And it seems to me, to be realistic, people ought to be aware of that. Can I? Can I sure. Just go ahead. Um, yeah, I, you know, I said at the beginning that Professor Kennedy is, is sort of a, a voice of reason in a lot of debates, and, and you know, I think this is proving it. We're, you know, by the end of this discussion, we, we may eliminate all, all real differences between our positions. Because I've moved off of the 14th Amendment. You're moving off of sort of relying entirely on race. You know, you're making concessions about the lack of transparency. We actually, um, if you got the two of us in a room, we can, we can probably solve this whole problem. Um, because, you know, uh, you're right that um, when I did my, when, when I came, up, came out with this work on, on the mismatch problem in law school, uh, I lost a lot of liberal friends and I suddenly had all these conservative friends. Um, and um, I, I, certainly not all of them, but many of them were, um, you know, just sort of friends of expediency. It was like, oh yeah, what a great argument for us to use against preferences. Um, and when I would say, yes, but if we, if we eliminate preferences, we need to have these anti-housing segregation strategies, I'd say, well, I don't know about that. So there's a real need for a middle in this, in this discussion. And the middle tends to be absent. Over the last decade, I think in many ways we've seen a polarization of the discussion. We see kind of a very aggressive racial justice movement that is uh, not just not giving any ground on higher education racial preferences, but saying, no, this is a model of what we need to do across society. We should have, uh, we should have really large preferences. We should, we should have racial goals everywhere. Um, and then you've had a, uh, um, you know, a, a more aggressive conservative movement um, that is, uh, that has not put forward, I would say, uh, a kind of positive vision of how to, how to address racial inequality. So I found in, in, in my own involvement in the issue that it was, it's very hard to find voices in the middle who can sort of say no to both sides and really push for reasonable solutions. Okay, next question. Hi, uh, so part of the debate surrounding Proposition 209 involved the fact that many students who were mismatched, as was brought up in the debate, tended to leave STEM majors and go into majors that many studies now have conclusively shown to have much worse life outcomes, as in you, you actually lose money by going to college is one example. And yet universities that claim to want to help these students who are under, underprivileged because of their race, generally do not do anything to combat this trend. 
So my question would be, doesn't this cast doubt on the idea that colleges and universities can be trusted to take on the task of redressing these historical grievances, these historical wrongs that have been committed against certain groups? Well, on the question of trust, I mean, I, th I think uh, people in authority always have to be looked at skeptically. Um, I'm part of higher education, and I am actually proudly part of higher education. I think that um, our colleges and universities are certainly to be criticized in, you know, along many, you know, dimensions. I also think, however, that if one takes a look at uh, American society and asks where in American society uh, are people trying to do you know, good things, where in American society is, um, is thoughtfulness, is knowledge, is uh, um, you know, respected and honored and fostered, I think would be in you know, college life, university life. That doesn't mean giving a blank check. And so you know, to the extent if, 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 if a university or a college is uh, falling down on its job, and you know, they do, um, they should be called on it. Uh, just like, again, you know, I, I have come here. My role in this debate is to be a, um, I, not just my role, my, my view. I am a defender of affirmative action. That doesn't mean I'm a defender of every sort. I mean, affirmative action can be done stupidly, just like every other policy. You can have a policy of affirmative action that is done in a way that accentuates the bad aspects of affirmative action. Now, well, I'm against that. On the other hand, it seems to me, you can have affirmative action that minimizes almost inevitable drawbacks, but that also accentuates uh, good things. And so I guess you know, what, I'm, what I'm basically saying is we have to be, we have to be critically, we have, to, we have to view all of the actors critically and be skeptical. Um, and if at the end of asking a lot of questions, at the end of gathering material, at the end of thinking through things hard, if people are falling down, okay, call them on it. Well, here we disagree. Um, I think uh, part of the problem with our current system of preferences is that we are relying on universities to be uh, good trustees of this kind of exception to our general uh, abhorrence of racial discrimination. And they haven't been good trustees. I think they've, been, they've operated in incredibly bad faith. Um, so well, let me just give the topic of law school mismatch as an example. Back in the late 1980s, it was generally understood and agreed within the legal academy that there was a distressingly large uh, gap between white and black bar passage rates. The white bar passage rate was you know, 85 to 90%. The black bar passage rate was 50 to 60%. So a large uh, national study was put together, and uh, the cooperation of 90% of all American law schools was secured. And surveys were done that, that covered like 80% of the class that entered in 1991. 
almost every bar in the country cooperating in this study. The original plan of the study included asking the question of whether there might be a counterproductive effect of orange preferences. That question was consciously deleted from the program of research before the actual research started. And the data was altered so that it would be extremely hard for researchers to tease out the counterproductive effects of discrimination. I can go into more detail about how this actually happened, but it really was it's pretty, it pretty bad. I, I'm not, you know, in general, a big believer in conspiracy theories. I, I think that, uh, you know, most people in positions of authority behave honorably most of the time. But on, on these issues of race, uh, um, leaders in higher education just seem to be especially vulnerable to uh, kind of uh, pressure group and groupthink and not wanting to be politically incorrect. And they just censor anything that they think is going to depart from that. So law schools, uh, you know, after my work came out, I, I argued that uh, large preferences were actually declining the number of, of attorneys that we were producing. It was having a substantial negative effect. Um, data has since come out showing that over a period of 30 years or so, about 8.5% of those that we admitted to law school were African American, but only about 5% of lawyers are African American. Well, what's the reason for the gap? It's, it's the huge change in effect in bar passage. Since my work came out, the US Commission on Civil Rights has issued detailed reports saying, yeah, there's something here. Law schools really need to pay attention to this. There's been zero effort on the part of law schools to address it, and there's been a systematic effort to stop producing any data. So at least in the 1990s, we had this, this big longitudinal study that was done. We haven't, don't have, even have good updated national data since the 1990s. Nobody wants to examine this issue. So yes, we should have a reasonable discussion, but the leaders of the legal academy are absolutely determined not to have that discussion. The, um, again, I don't think there should be any I don't think there should be any running away from realities. And to the extent that people sort of get scared and think, well, gosh, uh, we need to uh, shut this down because it'll make us look bad or because it might have, you know, it might give ammunition to this group or that group who have views that you know, we don't like. It seems to me that that's a, a, a very counterproductive way of dealing with things. Have I encountered that amongst people who are basically in my camp? Yeah, I've, I've, sure, I've, I've encountered that. And uh, I've argued against it. I think it is ultimately, um, uh, I think it's ultimately uh, self-defeating, it seems to me, particularly for people in the academy. Uh, I don't think that there's, you know, I don't think any, you know, do, do not be afraid of uh, realities. Do not be afraid of, of facts. I think that sometimes people panic and they do get afraid and, you know, go into a sort of a censorious crouch and that's, you know, that's, that's not good. Now, let me, while I've got the floor, I want to say one other thing. And, th and th this has to do, I think, why people sort of sometimes do get in a crouch. Um, the debate that we're, one, one aspect of the conversation that we're having 
has a very long history. Uh, it's not simply in modern America that there are people who are making a complaint against what they view as preferences and unfair preferences. This is a debate that's been going on since, you know, the middle of the 19th century. The very first Federal Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, was subject to a presidential veto. Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. What did the Civil Rights Act of 1866 say? The Civil Rights Act of 1866 said that all persons in the United States would have the same right as white persons to enter into contracts, own property, testify, sue, and be sued. Andrew Johnson vetoed that Civil Rights Act. And his veto message was very interesting. His veto message says this gives discriminating, this gives discriminating protection to the freedmen. This was, in his view, a type of reverse discrimination. This was giving a preference. He said, there's been no law like this before. Now, of course, white people hadn't been enslaved before. But that was the beginning. And there is a long history of uh, allegations of unfair preference allegations of reverse discrimination, allegations that you know, people, you know, racial minorities, particularly black people, are getting away with murder, trying to get something for nothing. This too is part of the conversation and needs to be reckoned with. And it too affects the way in which people actually hear things. I think it's because of that that sometimes people have gone into defensive crouches and have really sort of uh, panicked and taken the position, well, you know, you, you, you can't say this and you can't say that. Even to the extent, for instance, of denying that there are preferences. I mean, I've been on panels in which, you know, people on my side, will say, well, no, there, there really isn't a preference. And I, I've had to say, well, hold it. What are we here debating? I mean, obviously, obviously affirmative action involves stretching out a hand to help people. And the question now the attack on it is, it's unfair to the people who are not getting the outstretched hand. I'm making the argument that the outstretched hand is in fact fair. But is there an outstretched hand? Yes, there is. I think people sort of want to deny that, but again, because they're, you know, they're panicking. And they're thinking, well, gosh, if we concede that there's an outstretched hand, doesn't that make us vulnerable? Well, be real and make arguments that are based on realities and try to persuade people. Question. Um, uh, sorry, 
Uh, Professor Sandner, much of your um, objection to affirmative action was kind of based on these um, specific statistical downsides of um, race preferences and um, these policies. I was wondering, uh, Professor Kennedy mentioned um, a better form of affirmative action, that not all forms of affirmative action are ones that he would support. So if there were forms that mitigated these statistical downsides and that they, that they were absent from the equation, would you still have an objection to affirmative action? Do you believe that there's something inherently unjust, even if it helps through their design to help? Thanks. Um, so, so first, I'm definitely for affirmative action. I'm only, the only thing that I'm arguing against is the, the uh, racial preferences. And I'm arguing that racial preferences violate Title VI. Um, and all of the stuff on outreach, the use of, um, um, you know, a, a factory race into, say, uh, housing integration programs, um, the use of uh, socioeconomic preferences, those are, all, those are all forms of affirmative action, and they're all desirable things, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think the problem is that with racial preferences in higher education, we've, we've dug ourselves into a very deep hole. And, uh, and, you know, the kind of reforming impulse that Professor Kennedy is, is championing is largely absent. We just have not made progress in the last 30 years towards trying to make preferences temporary and trying to fix the defects that are increasingly evident. So the staleness of the debate and the rigidity of, of higher education institutions are what drive me to, to feel that uh, we need the Supreme Court to intervene and that if they do, then I hope that there can be a, a renewed debate focused on sort of specific legislative proposals that, that kind of say, well, okay, you can do A, B, and C if you provide transparency, if you have this evaluation mechanism, if you have this oversight process. That would be a, a really different world. I want to press you on that yeah. because you've – I want to press you on your affirmative action preferences distinction. Uh, and by the way, I thought that was a really good question, really good question. And I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't think you really fully met the question because let's suppose that, um, let, let, again, you, know, let, let, you, you spoke earlier and you just spoke of, well, you're in favor of various proxies mm -hmm. that would have the effect of the outstretched hand to historically, you know, to, to marginalize racial minorities. What, okay, fine. What are you going to do in response to the person who says that's a racial discrimination? You know, if, if you're, um, the, the, the state of Texas, and you know that, this, uh, affirmative action is invalidated in the state of Texas. So the state of Texas, what it does is it says, okay, fine, we're not going to have uh, uh, express direct racial categories for purposes of, uh, of our admissions program. What we're going to do is we're going we're to do the following. We're going to say that the top 10% of every, the top 10% of every public school in the state of Texas if you're in the top 10%, you can go to the flagship, you know, institutions in the state of Texas. 
There's nothing about race there. It's just top 10%. Now, but the purpose of it, the purpose of it was, well, there were a couple of purposes. One purpose was to keep the, you know, to get more racial minority students in, Latinos, blacks. Also, by the way, to help out rural white kids. But race was definitely part of the top 10%. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, this proxy doesn't have race written right on it, but race is right beneath it. And therefore, it is race conscious, and therefore, it should be viewed as invalid. How would you respond to that person? Well, I think it's, it's certainly possible, more than possible, to reverse engineer racial preferences in ways that make them appear race neutral, but mm -hmm. have very much the same effect. Um, and, it, and regardless of what, you know, the Supreme Court, if they go the, the Title VI route, if they go the 14th Amendment route, if they have any aggressive action against racial preferences, we will see future litigation, I think, about mm -hmm. those surrogates, right? That, that, that issue will, will achieve salience. Um, I think a good way of distinguishing what's a, a reasonable from an unreasonable surrogate is the, the overall size of the preference, which maybe is um, too technical to satisfy a lot, of, a lot of participants in the debate. But I think the fundamental evil here is, is how large the overall preference becomes. When my law school moved from racial preferences to socioeconomic preferences, um, the average preference, even though we gave a larger percentage of the class of preference, the average size of the preference fell by about 70 to 75 percent. The class that we admitted was the most academically successful class that we had ever had at UCLA. Those two things were linked. In other words, moderating the size of preferences reduced the sort of boomerang effects that, that are, are a significant part of my concern. It also mitigates kind of the concern of people who are interested in challenging things. In other words, if you, you know, if you have relatively moderate preferences and you're complementing those with really good outreach efforts, pipeline efforts, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's gonna be particularly controversial. I think what's controversial is having preferences that are so large that they, <laughs> they produce, you know, gross unfairnesses to some people who are passed over, but also these really unpleasant boomerang effects. Um, to give you one more example from my law school, uh, back, it, it, this is sort of introducing a, a, a complex problem, but you know, after the first several years of, of uh, race neutrality in the UC system, you started seeing the schools, um, many of the UC schools, trying to creep back into a preference world and introducing various things that they saw as uh, sort of backdoor ways of, of, of reintroducing preferences. And those have now become large enough that I think a lot of the counterproductive effects that were solved by Prop 209 have reappeared. Um, there's, there's a really strong tendency for administrators to embrace these backdoor things over more straightforward programs that, um, 
that sort of are, are built on a more solid foundation. I mean, it's just it's so tempting for school administrators to just rely on preferences. So in my law school, after we did the socioeconomic experiment, we started this program <coughs> against my vote to, uh, to have uh, special admissions for our critical race studies program. The first year of that program, um, every white who applied for it was denied and, and, um, and a large percentage of the minorities that applied were accepted. It became, in effect, a, a backdoor racial preference. Uh, the faculty had approved at the same time a new program to go to uh, an economically and racially diverse Cal State campus and offer a, a law school course, like a typical first year law school course, to juniors and basically give a, a guarantee of admission to anyone who got an A in the course. That was a way of achieving greater diversity, of providing uh, a straightforward sort of helping hand to people who would otherwise be overlooked. That part of the, that part of the, the reform was never implemented. We've just defaulted to these backdoor methods. So I think we really have to have strong regimes against, uh, against those racial preferences to stop them. It's, it's just, it, they're, they're growth that just tend to sort of keep coming up. Can, uh, on, the, on the issue of, I mean, I think one thing that's, you know, one, one place where we differ is on the question of uh, how should what we perceive to be bad social policies be disciplined. Now, what you, what you, what you and what the, you know, what, what, what you're saying is you really don't like what you view as unreasonable affirmative action. You make a big, you know, you, 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 have you concede that actually you don't you don't really mind uh, my type of reasonable affirmative action? You just don't want that you know stuff that's run amok. And you know, frankly, I don't like what's run amok either. So on that, we're we're together. One one thing though is, how does one dis what what is a proper way of disciplining social policy? And what I would say is, you know, constitutional law is you go to constitutional law as a disciplining mechanism, um, I think, sparingly. Um, the sort of debate that we're having, it seems to me what you should be doing, what, what, what my preference would be, my preference, speaking of preferences, <laughs> my preference was, would be for you to write op-eds for you to petition the president of your university, for you to write to the board of trustees or overseers, whatever you call the ruling hunter, you write to all of them, you, uh, you, know, you, you, you have uh, uh, teach-ins, you have demonstrations, you engage in politics. And by the way, including um, putting something on the ballot. That's a type of politics. But it seems to me that that's the way to go as opposed to going to the, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States is a huge country, 300 million people taking up a continent for legal rules to try to determine 
what's going on in a country this big, that's, it, it seems to me, uh, an error. One last, one, one, one other, one last okay. thing. How, how are we doing? We're, we'll, we're doing okay. Okay, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll be. We had one, two more questions, but yeah. Okay, just one. Because earlier I talked about stigma, and I, I said that there really is one of the downsides, and I think virtually an unavoidable downside of an affirmative action regime, uh, including a sensible affirmative action regime. One of the things that's going to be there with it, one of the things that one's got to take into account is going to be this stigma thing. Now, having said that, I also want to say, you know, again, even with that, one needs to be careful. Uh, we need to be careful about, well, what jumps out in our mind as something that is stigmatizing? If one is thinking about baseball, if one is thinking about Ty Cobb, if one is thinking about uh, Babe Ruth, you don't, see a, you don't see an asterisk next to Ty Cobb's name. You don't see an asterisk next to Babe Ruth's name, even though when they were playing, they did not have to face black ball players. Now, you could take the position all white ball players prior to the desegregation of Major League Baseball, you go to the Hall of Fame, put an asterisk next to their name. You could take that position. We don't. Nor do we take into account the position my class, you mentioned I was a Rhodes Scholar. I was. I was a Rhodes Scholar in, uh, let's see, 1977. First class of women Rhodes Scholars was in my year. Rhodes Scholarship, you know, very prestigious thing. You take a look at the book of Rhodes Scholars, people don't go through saying, well, geez, you got a Rhodes Scholarship before 1977. You didn't have to compete against half the population. Nobody says that. No stigma thing there. But with respect to, you know, race and affirmative action, stigma thing. Again, we need to think really carefully about, well, you know, what, what jumps out in our mind? What is it that we credit? What do we not credit? I'll subside. Okay. <laughs> okay, one more, one faculty question, actually, and then I want to ask a question. Yeah, I'd like to get back to the 14th Amendment because I think you passed by that way too quickly. The equal protection of the law. How is that understood in constitutional law theory? My understanding is it says uh, similar persons, similarly situated, will be treated the same. And both of you seem to say, well, there's enough wiggle room there for affirmative action. But I don't see any wiggle room at all there. And I'm a little surprised that Professor Sanders went along so quickly to saying the 14th Amendment permits or allows affirmative action. Where's the wiggle room there? And well, I'd also like to hear Professor Kennedy's reply too. Okay, I, I, I guess my position wouldn't be that the 14th Amendment certainly allows this, but the Supreme Court generally favors making decisions on the narrowest grounds that it can. And I think Title VI provides great grounds for addressing both Harvard and UNC. So I, I, would, I would encourage them to leave the 14th Amendment question for a later issue. I think, you know, to give you an example, um, uh, it, it, it has been held that under the 14th Amendment, 
it's reasonable to do remedial, uh, to take remedi remedial racial steps mm -hmm. uh, to redress past discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, so to go back to my housing segregation example, I think it would be consistent with the 14th Amendment to set up mobility programs that provide incentives for people of any race to get a, a grant if they agree to make a, a pro-integrated move, if they agree to move into an, a neighborhood where they are a minority, you know, whatever race they are, if they agree to move into an other race neighborhood, that could be a very effective way of reducing segregation levels. Um, I don't think it would violate the 14th Amendment even though it's arguably treating people differently with respect to race, it's sort of creating a racial classification. But it's, it's trying to remedy um, what are, are pretty clear patterns of past discrimination through programs like the Federal Housing Administration Insurance Program. I like this because uh, it, allows, uh, it allows my uh, distinguished adversary and I to be arm in arm at the end of this, uh, of, of this debate. I would agree with you, I would agree very much with what you said, and as to the equal protection of the laws. What does that mean? That's, yeah, what does, and we, and over, the, you know, since 1868, we've seen it mean a lot of different things. One of my favorite formulations of the equal protection clause with respect to the racial context was, one, was the very first time that the Supreme Court of the United States applied the Equal Protection Clause in a racial context. What was the case? Strouder versus West Virginia. Uh, the issue was whether the state of West Virginia violated the Constitution by excluding all blacks from jury service. And the Supreme Court said yes, that was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And in its discussion of the Equal Protection Clause, it said that the Equal Protection Clause was a, uh, a, a way of prohibiting what it called unfriendly legislation. I like that form, unfriendly legislation. I embrace that. Unfriendly legislation, in my view, is invidious legislation. It is being against people because of their identity. Um, to go along with something that Professor Sanders said, even the, even the, 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 the justices in the past 20 years who have been most hostile to affirmative action are probably Justices Scalia and Justice Thomas. Both, ju both of those justices, however, do make an exception for governmental action that uh, is directly responsive to proven acts of past racial discrimination. So even they said, under certain circumstances, one can take race into account. There's another place, by the way, in which they said race should be taken into account. There was a case involving prisons. Should prisons be able to take race into account? So in California, uh, when you go into prison, they would have, uh, for, for a certain period of time, the uh, you know, white prisoners over here, black prisoners over here, Latino prisoners over here, and that was done 
because of these gangs in prison and the position of the, of the, of the uh, penitentiary authorities was to protect people, we're engaging, yes, are we engaging in racial discrimination? Yeah, we're engaging in racial discrimination to protect people. The Supreme Court said you cannot, you, no, we're striking that down, you can't do that. Justices Scalia and Thomas dissented. And they said, listen, this is an emergency. This is to save people's lives. In this context, government actually ought to be able to take race into account. My point, my point is that even the most, you know, stalwart folks sort of, you know, uh, saying, uh, you know, race blindness would be their line, or race neutrality, whatever, you know, whatever formulation you want to take it. Even they would say under certain circumstances, it makes sense in a society like ours to take race into account. I would agree. I would just have a larger conception than they would have. And I would say, I really will subside here, <laughs> I would say that in the United States of America, we are still, we are still in a racial emergency. A racial emergency that should allow for uh, race conscious policy making so long as it's not invidious. To the extent that it gets invidious, then I'm against it. Absent that, I say let, let the political debate go, and you know whoever wins the political debate should win the debate. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. You need. I know. Uh, I, I, this is just an important point that I, that I just want to highlight, Professor Kennedy. Would you consider the Jewish quota that Harvard had in the 20s and 30s to be invidious? Yes, it was invidious. So, how would you distinguish that from? the current anti-Asian policy. Yeah, because, first of all, I don't think it's an, I would, I would fight you on, it's not an anti-Asian. <laughs> You're questioning the assumption. Yes, I would question the assumption. It, uh, at, at Harvard, at Harvard, it was explicitly, it was explicitly, yes, anti-Jewish. We wanna have, there, there, there are too many Jews here, and we want to have fewer of them. And the president, the president of Harvard University, when he taught, you know, people, whoa, what, what, what's, what's on your mind? Well, he was very explicit. You know, these, the, the, these, these Jews with their values, with their aims, you know, we, 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 we want as few, we, we gotta have some, I suppose, but we would like to have as few as possible. And he no. was explicitly, it was, he was, Lowell was full of anti-Jewish animus. He raised and he trafficked in all sorts of anti-Jewish tropes, anti-Jewish stereotypes. If that it was part, if Harvard University was doing that vis-a-vis -vis Asian Americans, I would be protesting in front of Harvard Hall. That would be awful. I would be totally against it. So I do not think, I do not think that that is what is going on. The former chief, the most important person other than the president of Harvard University, Bill Lee, Asian American, yep. uh, did not think that's what's going on. I do not, and in fact, 
There are a lot. There, so, there are a, right. one last thing. There are a whole lot of Asian American people who are not on board yeah. with the Asian American plaintiffs. And in fact, the Asian, the, 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 who is behind the Asian American plaintiffs? Who's behind the American? Mr. Blum is not, you know, an, uh, a, a, a crusader in right. general. But that, that's two points. So well, let me You see where I'm quick, going. Yeah, I do. So Mr. Bloom's organization does have 20,000 Asian American members. I'm sure. Um, the Jewish quota in the 20s and 30s basically capped Jewish enrollment at 15%. Jews at the time made up 2% of the American population. So that, I agree, it was an, it was, there was a lot of anti-Semitic motivation behind it. But it, it was a policy that allowed Jews to be overrepresented by a factor of more than seven to one. The current Asian quota at Harvard is more like three to one. It's a much, uh, it's a much harsher restriction on Asian enrollment than the Jewish quota ever was. Mm -hmm. So I just think one needs to take that into account. It, it's, it's not so obvious what the distinction is between invidious and non-invidious. I have lots of questions for you, but I, I think in the interest of time, I'm, I'm gonna reserve my questions for dinner tonight. But let me take this opportunity to thank you both for a very spirited, lively, and courteous, congenial conversation. I do think we can do business together here. <laughs> so thank you very much, and let's, please join me. And that was our special episode of 13. Thank you to Professor Brubaker for helping to introduce today's debate. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to send us a note to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.